A warning, this podcast contains references to subjects and discussions that could be hard for some people to hear, so please take care when you're listening. I think for these kids growing up too, like it is, make it normalise it more. It's, mm. yeah. And that would be so good because, you know, I'm 35 and it's just a mystery to me. Mm. <laughs> you know, what, your own vagina? Basically, you know. <laughs> okay, imagine being diagnosed with cervical cancer when you're only 27 years old. You're fit, you're healthy, you're a mum. And your daughter hasn't even started school. From Stuff and Bird of Paradise, this is Tell Me About It. The podcast where we take you behind the scenes of our reporting on gender issues. To hear the voices at the centre of our stories. I'm Kirsty Johnston, I'm a reporter at Stuff, specialising in the justice system. I'm Michelle Duff, I'm a national correspondent at Stuff, and I write about issues that affect women and children's lives. And, well, we're both obsessed with the way the system's rigged against women and minorities. And that's what we come up against and what we're trying to highlight in all of our work. I'm Noelle McCarthy. I'm a writer and a broadcaster, and I produce this series. This is episode two. Today we're talking to Sarah, who's come from Waipokoro, and she's sharing the story of being diagnosed with cervical cancer when her daughter Ratahi was very small. So Sarah's mum, Sandra, is actually an expert in cervical screening, and it was a shock for her when her daughter was diagnosed. So it's three generations of wahine Māori today talking about the impact of cervical cancer on their whānau. So you've been working in this area of women's health for ages, Michelle. Um, Can you tell us briefly what we need to know about sort of the overall system? Okay, so... Cervical cancer is caused by the human papillomavirus. Love how you say that. It's yeah, Great quite work. exotic sounding. But in reality, it's the most deadly strains of it can cause cervical cancer. So it is the only cancer that's preventable. Yet about 160 women get it every year in New Zealand and about 50 die from it. So earlier this year, uh, Kiritapu Allen shared her diagnosis of cancer on Instagram. And since then, it has been announced that there is a new self-test that is going to be funded that, uh, you know, can help diagnose cancer. That's great. But I guess my question is, why has it taken so long? And this is a question you've been asking over and over again in your reporting, right? banging on about it. Yeah, I mean, it's like sort of a broken record situation at this point, but why? What's the status quo at the moment? Like, what do we, how do we test? Yeah, well, since our screening program was brought in, the the standard, the testing for cancer has been the uh, smear test. So, you know, the little duck bill. Love that. And you just you hop love up on that, the bed and then they're like, hey, we're just going to ratchet you up here. Just like you're a car at the mechanics. Yeah, so that's how we've done it so far. And there is a better way of doing things, though. You know. Shock, horror, <laughs> surprise, <laughs> surprise. Is this possible? So since uh, around 2015, we've, we've known that there's a better test uh, for, for cancer and that it's, a, it's called a self-test. And the way that it is done, either by the doctor or the person who needs it done, is it sort of just like a you put on an applicator like a tampon and it's that easy. And this is particularly good, isn't it? Because this is the sort of thing that potentially can go some way towards correcting historic inequities in our system that have been there for ages anyway, right? Yeah, exactly. So the we've had a target of reaching 80% of women and we've never met that for wahine Māori 
and you know, it's sort of well off, well, you know, white women in affluent areas where we've managed to hit that. So they're the only ones reaching their 80% target. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So, but other than that, it's, yeah, it's really, well, it's really unfair for for Māori women, for Pacifica women. And, you know, wahine Māori likes here in Ratahi are more, less likely to have their cancer picked up and more likely to die from it. And you said you've known since 2015. Sorry, was it 2015 that 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 there are that government have known since 2015 that there's actually a better way of doing things. Yeah, they've had chances to fund this program for years, and they've just turned it down. I think four years in a row, it's come up. Yeah, and I feel like what we've heard about that is that there isn't enough money to fund that. But I think if you read between the lines, they're basically just saying that it's not a priority. So I think actually there's not like a lack of money because you could argue that about like every single thing. It's actually a lack of political will. And like you say, Michelle, like they've had a few goals at getting it through, but it looks like maybe the next budget is is where we might see more funding. Yeah, so it'll be considered again as part of the next budget or there's been funded allocated towards it and now they're saying that it's maybe 2023 that we'll be able to get this. Wait, why? Is it taking... Okay, I know that's the question, but still, like, why is it taking so freaking long? Yeah, well, I mean, look, <laughs> that's always the question, you know, particularly with women's That's the health. question she keeps asking. Yeah, anyway. I'm here. Yeah. I'm on your I'm so, on your walker. So who's here? Who are we going to... Who are we going to talk to? So we've asked Sarah to come along and talk about her diagnosis and treatment for cervical cancer, uh, which is 12 years ago now. And her daughter, Ratahi, has come in with her, and she's 16 now. So Sarah wrote about being diagnosed at the time, and I asked if I could read it out to start the interview. So that's where we're going to kick into it. So Sarah, this is something that you wrote a couple of years after you had had cancer? Yep. So I thought I'd just read this because it actually really struck me. And Ratahi hasn't heard it, I don't think, either. So, cancer, cervical cancer, radiation every day, chemo once a week, internal, internal radiation five times, blood transfusions, PEP scans, CAT scans, you name it, I had it. They were all horrible and some were more painful than anything I've experienced. At times I felt violated. This is something I wish no one had to go through. But the hardest part for me is what happens to my daughter if I die. How do I explain it to her that mum's not going to be here? She's only three and who looks after her? These thoughts are the hardest. And you can't cry or talk about them. Because that makes them real. You don't want it to be real so you make a plan and don't think about it again. You have to be in control. If you're not, no one else can go through this for you. I'm a mother. I have a child. And what was it like hearing that for you, Sarah? Oh, I can't... Well, I've got to admit, I probably didn't remember it all like that. I was quite impressed I wrote that, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it is. That's pretty much... Yeah, it really was probably the hardest thing. I had to give Rate to my sister for about a week and a half, two weeks, because I physically couldn't care for her. So that was probably, yeah, the the hardest part, yep. Had you heard that before? No. <laughs> Can you take us back to the time in your life when you got your diagnosis, what life was like and what was going on, Sarah? 
Um, like I was saying probably before when we talked that I probably, if I looked back in hindsight, had lots of symptoms, but I was just a single mum working a couple of jobs, you know, busy, active, playing sports, doing all those things, um, could probably explain all the symptoms away, I guess. But mm. yeah, and then I mine was back pain at the start, and I just brush that off to, oh, you know, play sports and not some, if you're not as fit, you get a bit injured every now and then, but, and then I suppose when I look back, extreme tiredness, going toilet all the time, all adds up, so yeah. Yeah, so you went in and got a smear or you'd, oh, you'd had them before? Yeah, so I've had smears before, but with my back pain, like you go into the doctor and they're like, oh, yep, can't see anything, go to the physio, check that out too, wasn't muscular. Um, then went back again because it got so, you know, they can give you Panadol or Ibuprofen and then it just it got to the point where I it was just sore all the time. So, like, I remember during the day I was hunched over at work because I was a swimming instructor and I was like, couldn't handle it anymore, I suppose. I got to that point and I went back again to the doctor and that's when I went for, like, an ultrasound. Yeah, and she couldn't find it on the outside, so she asked if she could do an internal ultrasound and I was like... Sure. <laughs> you know, pretty trusting of the healthcare system. And then she found something. That was probably, yes, December the 2nd, I think, was was when that was the first time they saw something. And then I'd started treatment by February the next year. So it was really quick and, um, yeah, the process was really quick once they found it. And you were young too, so so that's actually quite rare, isn't it? Yeah, 27. So they was, it was really rare when I, I think it's more common now. But when I, yeah, it was yeah, 12 years ago now, so it was pretty, yeah. Mm. And, and did you know much yeah. about it? Like, did you really understand? Because I feel like it's such a classic thing for women to not really understand their bodies or what's going on. Probably, it was probably worse because my mum works as a cervical screening in the cervical screening field. So she's the kaifaka Heidi for the Hawke's Bay DHB from Wairoa down to um, Takapau, I think, yeah. But so she does the screening, the screening process and stuff is what her area is. So it wasn't something that I was um, foreign to, but it was just, I suppose as a 20, you're not really thinking of it. It's not, you're not in the high risk category for some and you're fit and you're doing sports yeah. and you yeah. know getting on with your life you know you've got you've got a young child um when you what once you were in the system and once it had been diagnosed and you said everything happened quite quickly did it yeah. uh, you talked to me a bit about the treatment when we talked it sounded grueling yeah i suppose yeah I, yeah uh, it, it's cool. It's, it's all sensitive the area down there anyway, and then it's it is quite intrusive because it's your it's your childbearing property sort of area, you know. That's yours that you have for you know, and so I had a cone biopsy back in Hawkes Bay, and then I um, came down to Wellington here, the hospital here. They were pretty amazing down here, and I had all the other tests and stuff down here. In January, they found out they couldn't operate because it had gone into my cervix wall. So when they first diagnosed me, they said I was a 2B and then it had progressed by the time they came to operate. And so um, I was quite probably trusting of the of the process and mm. 
the, they'd say come to this appointment at this time and I sort of didn't read into what those treatments were or what those operations were. I just sort of turned up at that wing and did that test and moved on. But yeah, it was, yeah, so that's when I came down here and I had to choose whether I could save some of my ovaries or um, and delay the, the start of chemo and stuff or um, just choose to go ahead. It was, it's like having a hysterectomy, they said, it would take another eight weeks, so they couldn't say um, how much it would, you know, grow you, or whatnot. How do you make that decision? Um, I probably, well, it was probably easy in the sense that I was already a single mum. <laughs> <laughs> you were already there. <laughs> yeah. So already I was quite grateful for having Date, so therefore that, and then I thought, well, just, you can't, they couldn't guarantee that it wasn't going to get any worse in eight weeks. So I just, yeah, thought I'd just get on with it. So do you have a full hysterectomy? No, I, they couldn't um, They couldn't operate, but when you have radiation after a couple of weeks, your ovaries start, stop working. So that was the either save some eggs or start treatment. So I just started treatment. Yeah. Do you remember what that decision was like to make? Oh, I think it was pretty easy because it yeah. was more about um, probably Ratahi was probably like the guiding saving force through it. Like that's, I just had to do that. That's mm. what had to happen, and it was very much like how I just just he said that was good. You know, the I think the doctor said it was sixty five percent was my success rate. So that was pretty much my mindset, and I just did what they said and turned up when they said and that was just how it was going to happen mm. yeah and even before the um the diagnosis you know before you got sick you had been having regular smears yep i think i had more than i was supposed to somehow um eager. i guess mum, <laughs> I, know, I know your mum probably <laughs> knows what to do with that, right sorry yeah. get the duck bell out yeah. <laughs> back for the banter so I yeah. think I'd had them before I had her. I had one before I had her, definitely. And when they did the smear history, that was one of them was that was a misread from that. I don't think it was like I it was just a abnormal cell when they went back and reread it. But usually, once you once you get an abnormal cell smear, they will pick you up again the next year. But because it wasn't originally picked up, I didn't go again probably till after I'd had her. Oh, uh, yeah. I get it. Yeah, because yeah. they make them more frequent, eh? Yeah. They pick up an abnormal and, one. And I, the second one was that when I ha- after her, I had another misread. And so usually if you have two abnormal smears, then you go on to the gynecologist or into the, yeah, and have them done. More regularly. More well, more thorough. So nowadays when you have a smear test, we have what's called liquid-based cytology. Unlike the old process of wiping the smear straight into a glass slide, your cells now go into a special preservation liquid. This can improve testing by rinsing off anything that could obscure the cells. But the two misread smears Sarah's talking about here were done before 2008, back when your cells were put straight onto the slide. This literal smear test wasn't foolproof by any means. There were lots of technical reasons why you might get what's called a false negative result, like Sarah got twice, even if your doctor and the lab do everything right. Two different DHBs, two different smear takers, two different labs reading. I think it was more the process how it was the whole process of reading the smears. They read like a quarter of a smear, and if everything was looking good there, then then that You're was pretty good. Yeah. They tend to, they read the whole smear, the, the whole slide these days, and 
Mm. Yeah. How did you feel about that? Like, were you angry that they'd missed it or? Oh, just, well, yeah, I suppose, yeah. I just, it was, I just happened to be that one person twice, I guess, yeah. I don't know, it's, it was, it was, uh, it was about a year, I think they, they did the, when I finished treatment, that's when they started to, because of mum's involvement in cervical screening, they were able to use, you know, she was able to ask if they could do a history check and stuff like that. So it was good to know, probably a bit of clarity about how I did get missed and stuff like that, and it wasn't anyone's fault, but it was, yeah, I suppose I'm here, yeah. and so is Rate, so I sort of feel... Not so, but there's lots of people that aren't or that mm. don't have their children, so, mm. yeah. And what was it like, the recovery from the treatment that you had? Oh, it's it's really hard to explain. So radiation makes you feel not normal. For mm. me, it was just, you just, it wasn't that you couldn't do anything or couldn't do some stuff. It was just not, you just weren't yourself. That, yeah, it's quite hard to explain. For me, like you get tired as the weeks go on. That was just the normal radiation. Chemo was like, it just, yeah, it feels like your life's going out of you. Mm. But it's quite, um, bless all the volunteers and stuff that are in the in the wards up there because they'd bring you wheat packs and, and cup of teas and food while it's happening. And would and you have to travel? Like, would you have to travel home to Hawke's Bay? Um, I stayed with my sister, so she was in Titahi Bay, and so she worked in town at the hospital. So she, it was really, like, the support. So we lived there. We both lived there while it was happening, and we've got friends, um, family friends in Plumerton, the Baddeleys, and they pretty much between my sister, them, the whole family, the two kids, and um, Karen's sister, boss, they looked after Rātahi through the like yeah, you're probably too small to remember any of this. Do you or do you remember um, any of it? I remember parts of things. Like I remember being like sitting in the hospital in like the camera room, just colouring in kind of thing, and then seeing her through like a screen, getting like her stomach marked and stuff like that. That's about almost it. Yeah. Was it really hard for you hearing what your mum wrote? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Did it help writing? you know, keeping a, di- a diary or... Um, oh, I was quite, um, probably I was quite really, um, I just kept it in a little bubble. I think I just, that's how I, for me, everyone is different. For me, that's how I got through it. Like everything, yeah, it was, we didn't, yeah, I just came down here. Mum and Dad were busy on the orchard. It was summer fruit season. They stayed back there. I just stayed here, got on with things and went back when it was all finished and it was just how I I suppose that was the only way I could control yeah that's the only thing I could control really I guess Mm. again I'd done no research I didn't look up what anything was I just turned up and next minute I was just the test all the treatments were happening so I sort of um I think for me that was a good thing because I think if I had read what they were it would have yeah, been. the idea of it can be. Yeah, the internal radiation, especially, was real. Yeah, that wasn't. That was pop. That was horrible. Like, that was. If you laughed, it would just hurt. And all you could do is, all the nurses could do was give you morphine during the day while you waited. Like you, went in in the morning about seven. I'd get knocked out. Catheter would get put in, and like a probably not the best choice of words, but like a metal prong was. Mm. Like a like a speculum, pretty much, but mm. it was metal, and you'd sit there till about two in the afternoon. 
So to have been lying down and literally morphine was all they could give you to stop the pain. And then at two o'clock they'd get your internal radiation and then they'd pull everything out and yeah. you could go home. So I'd be some days it would be, yeah, I'd be pretty green. Yeah, when you heard about um, Kitty Tapu Allen, the MP, getting her diagnosis and everything, what? how did you feel? Oh, I suppose, yeah, everyone it is, it's quite, it's, yeah, it does, it does bring it all back and it is probably another, I suppose I was thinking, oh, it's still happening, we're still, it's still happening. I think that was the hard thing. It's like, yeah, this sort of stuff was big 12 years ago and again, it's still pretty big. The irony in this story is that Sandra Corbett, Sarah's mum, is an absolute legend in the field of cervical screening. Sandra is the Kaiwaka Haere, the Māori coordinator for all screening in the Hawke's Bay District Health Board. She's doing an incredible job helping wahine get screened in a system that doesn't always make it easy. We asked her what Sarah's diagnosis was like for her. It was gushing. Um, but I quickly realised I had to forget that I was a nurse and I had to be a mother first and a grandmother and be a family support person. My husband was even more gutted. I've, I've never seen him in such a terrible mindset. Um, and so, but you, you you have to remember that it's not about you, about who it was about Sarah. And we took the lead from her so that we could support her as she wanted to be supported. It also um, reinforced, I guess, the message that we need to give women around um, any um, signs and symptoms. Sarah had been having regular smears, but she had had misreads. And so fortunately, she continued to go back to her GP with these symptoms. But it took a while to get through, and by the time she had a scan, she'd already developed cervical cancer. So the system is not foolproof. And we have to um, really provide that ongoing support for women so that, um, and of course, her results being misread means it didn't indicate that, you know, there was anything serious. But once they do have that, um, that diagnosis, um, I think our services are fantastic, but it just is other people waiting in line, and you have to wait in line with the rest of them. It's so frustrating for someone like Sandra, who works at the coalface of screening, to know that there's an even better testing option available, but that we're still not using the self-sampling option widely, even though we've known about it for a while. How much of a difference would being able to self-test make? Oh, huge. We were gutted. Did you know it was 2016 that the National Survival Screening Programme first began alerting the sector to the fact that this was going to become available. It was 2016. Can you believe it? Wow. Then the bowel, the bowel screening program came along and there was no money. Then COVID came along and there was no money. And it's only really through active um, advocacy, I think, and pressure brought to bear um, that has made a difference and the, finally the minister, because we were getting to the point where even though we work <laughs> for the DHB and the Ministry of Health, 
um, we were getting um, a group of strong Māori advocates together um, that were ready to take action. It must be really frustrating for you, Sandra. But it's such a game changer. You know, our Kaitaka Waina could be trained so that when they're out in the community, they can just hand it to them, go and have a cordial with them, and, and you know, it would, it's going to make a huge difference. We have a lot of DNA, and some of the problem with DNA is that practices have so little appointments available that it doesn't always meet with busy, you know, people's Okay, so what Sandra's talking about here, DNA, is an acronym in the medical system, which means did not attend. It's people who didn't, or often couldn't, turn up for their appointments. Appointments which, like Sandra says, don't always work for the reality of their lives. When we talk about inequity in our health system, unfairness, this is a systemic stuff at the heart of it, expecting everyone to be able to fit into the same schedules. And this is exactly why Sandra and her team of kaitakawainga, or Māori liaison workers, are so successful in their job. They come up with creative solutions by understanding people's lives. It's like being a juggler and juggling different things. Sometimes it's access to a vehicle. Sometimes you work with these children. I did a smear on a woman who had three jobs. So she worked in a rest home, she worked in a supermarket, she worked at motels at the weekend. She had five children. She came home at three o'clock, or half past three, for the kids to come home and check that everything was fine. One of the eldest children was sort of supervising the, the rest of the family. And she said, I've got half an hour. If you can be there and do it within that time, I'll have my smear. Sandra went to the woman's home and did her smear. She and the Kai Takawainga do outreach as part of their job. But imagine what difference being able to self-test for HPV virus would make to that woman and thousands like her who are balancing their own health with a hundred other demands on their time. Following her mum's footsteps, working with a healthcare organisation in Waipukuro, Sarah is seeing the same limitations and the same opportunities when it comes to both screening in particular and the system in general. Yeah, and I think too the key is not one size fits all. And I think we've been in a healthcare system that um, they just model one one size fits all. And I think you're probably seeing it too, even with the COVID vaccinations, like we're doing drive-throughs, you're doing, um, you've got a mobile bus, you've like same thing with cervical screening. And that's why the HPV self-testing kit and stuff is really, really important. It's not going to be, that's not going to fit everyone, but it is going to suit a lot of a lot of women out there and a lot of young women probably too. You know, it is, or even older women, it is, it's less intrusive. You don't, you, you know, like your body is your personal space. So I think the fact that we're offering another way to check something is really, really important. It's taking so much work, so much research, advocacy, time and effort to get to a point where change is now coming. That change is happening both in the lab in terms of how we test for this preventable cancer and how we instigate things like self-sampling so wahine Māori are better served by the system. There's still a way to go, but the hope is that things will be better for Ratahi's generation. Yeah, and like I think for these kids growing up too, like it is, make it normalise it more. It's mm-hmm. yeah, And that would be so good because... You know, I'm 35 and it's just a mystery to me. Mm. You know? What, your own vagina? Basically, you know. I'm going to have to get the mirror I mean, I've, done, I've since done some Googling since high school. But we should, like it certainly wasn't a, you know, I mean, I don't know. What yeah. You, 
Well, guys, I grew up uh, in Ireland. I mean, our smear test, the only place you could go if, if your doctor never offered it, like my GP never offered it, but you could go to the family planning clinic in Cork and get a smear test. But the family planning clinic was periodically protests Protests. I, <laughs> I remember my friend going in for a smear test and there's a woman outside with a giant statue of the Virgin Mary. You know, it was just so for the Ted. Like, just going, oh God, really? Um, so no, you know, we were a long way from sort of provision, you know, easy provision. But um, hopefully it'll be different for the young, for the next generation. I mean, hopefully that stuff will be more talked about. I mean, is that sort of what you're hoping, like that there will be you know, Ratahi's generation and others where they won't even think about, like, this being embarrassing or, like... Yeah, or barriers, I think, too. Like, you have your own barriers as people. It would be nice, like, for the healthcare system to mm. just, you know, um, just, yeah, see the problem, find a solution, move on. Do you find, like, as someone who works in health, though, you know, we were laughing about it, it is slow, like, it's a slow improvement in the sector as a whole. Is that frustrating? Yeah, and I think, too, like, we're very lucky in our organisation. We I work for a Māori health organisation, so we're a little bit more squiggly lines than square box. And so we work in community health. So our nurses go out into the homes and they uh, do their stuff in home and they can do it in the clinic and they, you know, find out a best fit for the whānau. But it is it is still slow and it is still hard. Like, that's the, yeah. And the thing that frustrates me about organisations like yours, which, as you say, you know, it's beautifully put, work in squiggly lines rather than square boxes. I wish your contracts were longer and I wish you didn't have to do so much pay- paid more. And got paid more, <laughs> yeah. Because brilliant nurses and practitioners shouldn't have to make that decision. You know, you shouldn't have to say, yeah, I'm going to do this for my iwi and take a 25% pay cut or whatever it is about against market rate. You know, that's exhausting and, and that needs to change. You know, it's not fair. Yeah, and quite often, and they're long hours for the nurses, like most of our nurses, or they drive, like we're Waipokoro's a rural area still, and they still drive um, half an hour out to the rural areas and back and stuff, and if you sort of have to fit in with your whānau, so if they finish work at five, it has to be after hours, or yeah, so it is. I think our nurses on the front line out there in the community do an amazing job. So that was Sarah and her daughter, Ratahi, who was 16. And before that, we heard from Sarah's mum, Sandra. It was interesting listening to Sandra, wasn't it, um, earlier talking about uh, how much work impacts our lives, Kirsty. You know, how she was saying some of the women who she's trying to connect with for uh, screening, for smear tests, are working three different jobs, are juggling all sorts of responsibilities because it ties into what we're going to talk about next week. Yeah, I felt the fury began to rise when I heard that because I've been looking a lot at the moment into the pay gap, which I feel like, can we just quickly rename as pay discrimination? Because yeah. that's what That's it much is. better. Yeah, yeah so I'll, I'll go for that. We're going to talk about pay discrimination, particularly next week for Pacifica, because they are the group that have the biggest like gap between what they get paid for a job and what your Pākehā male would get for the same job or, like, you know, because he's more likely to become a CEO while you've got a Pacifica person who's likely to be a cleaner. So yeah, all this is that, a really important part of it that we're going to talk about as well because it's not just about wages, right? It's about education. It's about racism. It's about health. You know, it feeds into everything. Yeah, so. because when you're working three jobs and you've got no money and you're 
kid becomes of you know working age then they feel extreme pressure to work as well because it's about contributing to the whanau, right? So and this is exactly what we're seeing with COVID, right? We're seeing this right now play out in real time. So um, it's a good time to talk about it. We're going to talk to some contacts that you've made in your reporting of this story. Yeah, we're going to talk to uh, an advocate called Nia Bartley, who's amazing. and She's going to teach us basically about why there's a pay gap and what's been done about it. Or actually, more like accurately what's not been done about it what should be done about it what should be done about it uh, if you're listening government Tell Me About It is made by Bird of Paradise for Stuff written by me Kirsty Johnston Michelle Duff and Noelle McCarthy and produced by Noelle Carol Hirschfeld is our executive producer for Stuff and all of our engineering and sound design is thanks to Phil, Simon and Nicole at Matrix Digital. Our music is with kind permission from Tammy Nielsen, our queen. Tell Me About It was made possible by New Zealand On Air. Subscribe and review us, please, on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And a special thanks on this episode goes to Dr. Colette Bromhead from Massey University in Wellington for her expert advice around cervical screening. We love you, Colette.